to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Reading of scripture this morning is found in Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. That's page 940 on the Pew Bibles in the pew or under the seat in front of you, page 940, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the word of the Lord. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape in the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." He will render to each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace For everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The word of the Lord. Let's go to God in prayer and ask him to bless our time in his word. Lord, we face a passage that is awesome in speaking of your judgment. We pray that you would search us and enable us, Lord, not to be among those who are denying the reality of judgment, to be those who think that judgment will not fall on us if we ignore your word, to make light of that judgment or to make light of your kindness and leading us to repentance, the need for repentance. Oh, Lord, bless us that we will be found in Christ, that we will be found renewed in Christ, forgiven in Christ, transformed in Christ, embracing Christ to the full. Oh, Lord, we thank you that the gospel has come to us, this good news that you rescue sinners, helpless, broken, lost people who can do nothing for ourselves. Jesus Christ has accomplished all. We but put ourselves in his hands, turn from all else, and give ourselves up to him. Oh, Lord, even that giving of ourselves, you bring about by your power. 
you indeed are the Savior of sinners. And may you draw us to yourself afresh this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen. I was reading in the most recent Fortune magazine of the top 40 under 40. That is the top 40 business leaders who are themselves under 40 years old. And number about five on the list was a fellow named John Arnold. Uh, probably Ken knows his name. He's uh, head of uh, Centaurus Advisors. <clears throat> this fellow is now 35, but at age 28, he began this hedge fund, which last year was the third best producing hedge fund in the world. And it says that he's averaged <clears throat> or that there's no year that since uh, 2002 that he hasn't made at least 80%. It's pretty good, eighty <laughs> percent. So I, I did a little figuring, uh, and that would mean that if you put ten thousand dollars in two thousand two, you'd have a half a million, over a half a million, at least that, if it was just eighty <clears throat> percent. Um, so that's pretty remarkable. Quite a portfolio. <clears throat> but imagine the other side if you had lost eighty percent each year. And you started with a half a million in 2002. According to my calculations, you would now have $6.40 if you lost 80%. Well, it points to the title, How to uh, Develop a Portfolio of Wrath. Because Paul says that the Jews are basically doing that. In their rejection of God and His mercy... He says in verse 5, a striking thing, particularly striking because among Jewish writings, there was the idea that the Jews, that it was possible to be storing up good for yourself in that final day. And so, in effect, Paul is saying, yeah, you're storing up for yourself. You're storing up for yourself wrath. You're storing up yourself so that not everything will be taken away. At 80% loss a year, in, in the end, of course, everything's gone. And that's the problem with judgment, is everything is removed. Everything we ever had is gone. And we have nothing because we have rejected God. And in rejecting Him, we in the end lose everything else that we tried to hold on to as God. And it was no less true for the Jews than anyone else. This passage, on the surface, it's not immediately apparent that it was addressed to the Jews, but I hope to show that it was, as is the whole of this chapter. Bear in mind that when he gets to chapter 3 by verse 9, he has proven we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now, we've already dealt with chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, stressing that this, while it doesn't exclude the Jew completely, it primarily is referring to the Gentile, the pagans, in terms of their sin. But it looks like, and most commentators would say, this appears to be Paul's uh, approach in the synagogue in the marketplace and particularly how he would draw the Jews into his thinking 
into lining up with his uh, judgment upon the Gentiles and then to flip the tables on them. Much as how Nathan did with David, as David had sinned with Bathsheba and Uriah. Uh, and Nathan comes in and says, let me just tell you what happened. This guy has all these sheep and uh, more sheep than you can imagine. And somebody came to him and he wanted to serve them some food. And so he goes to this poor neighbor who only has one sheep, this little lamb that would sleep with them every night. He's like the, the pet of the, the family. And he went and took his one lamb away so that they lost his lamb when he has all these sheep and he slaughtered this and served it. And David just was so angry, you know, just flew into a rage at this man. What should be done to him? And then Nathan, of course, turned and said, you are the man. You took Uriah's one wife, you who have many wives and concubines to spare, and you took his one wife and committed adultery with her, and then you had him put to death. So... We, would, we should read this by the end of chapter 1. The Jews are giving Paul a standing O. Okay? They're right with him because the Jewish polemic, the Jewish attack on the Gentiles was just exactly this kind of thing that we see in chapter 1. It's not that Paul didn't believe it was true, because he even says here in verse 2, in fact, here he says, we all know, and he's really identifying with his fellow Jews at that point. We all know, we all agree, don't we, that God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice the things that I've been talking about, the sexual immorality and the social uh, confusion and, and wickedness that we see among the Gentiles. We all agree with that, don't we? Yes. And, and it's as, as though Paul is saying, so you're, you're with me here. You're, you're uh, standing alongside what I say. Yes. Uh, you're, real, you're, you're willing to throw the judgment switch, right? Yes. And, and if Paul said, well, who wants to cast the first stone? Me, 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 me. I'll cast the first stone. The Jews were all about this, this judgment that's falling on the Gentiles. And then right at that point, Paul says, you have no excuse. Having said that those Gentiles receiving the knowledge of God through creation have no excuse for not worshiping him and honoring him and thanking him because he so clearly revealed himself. And yet still they turned away from him and did not worship him and follow him, but worship the creature rather than the creator. They have no excuse. And right behind that, Paul says, you don't have excuse either, you who judge. Because you are practicing the very same thing. So in the first place, we see Paul's inclusion of the Jews in this judgment. And it even begins, therefore, you have no excuse. This probably goes back to verse 18, actually, of chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and righteousness. Therefore, you have no excuse because you are involved in ungodliness and righteousness too, O Jew. That's the feel of this. Even at the point where they're joining with him and saying, yes, I agree, I want to cast the first stone. In fact, he brings this up repeatedly in this passage. He says four times he refers to their judging. You who judge. It's kind of like, this is what we do. We judge. This is who you are. You're judgers of them. 
And so by judging them, by saying that all of this is wrong, you, as he says in verse 2, you condemn yourself because you're practicing the same things. You're saying that all these things are wrong, and yet you are involved in the same activity. And so how do you think that if judgment falls on them, that it will not fall on you? Verse 3. Because you do those same things yourself. How do you think you'll escape the judgment of God? You see, the, the, the Jewish mentality of that day was that God had a different way of judging the Gentiles than he did the Jews. And their expressions in their literature, if we had time, we could read them. But in their expressions in their literature was that, yes, we have sinned, but God will not judge us like he judges other nations. In fact, their idea was that God's just going to let us all go in together as a group. A group discount in Judgment Day, you know. Uh, We're going to get a free ride in that day. It's not going to be the same for us as it is for uh, uh, other people. There's a protective clause for us. There's a judgment-free zone for us. There's an invisible shield of protection for us that even though we have sinned ourselves... Uh, God will bring us in because we're his people. Interestingly, when he talks about repentance here, the Jews would say God has left open and been in kindness to the Gentiles so that they might come to repentance. And Paul says, don't you know that this kindness is for you, that you might come to repentance? You are the ones that need to repent. Which parallels so closely not only Old Testament prophets, but John's message in Matthew 3 and Jesus' message in in Mark 1 when they came and said, you must repent. And there was John the Baptist saying, don't say that your father is Abraham. That doesn't mean anything. You've got to repent. And Jesus' uh, encounter with the Jews in chapter 8 of John and their claim that we're descendants of Abraham and, and Jesus got really down and dirty with them and saying, no, you're, I'll tell you who your father is. Your father is Satan. You know, of course, do you imagine how offensive that was to them who think that, who, who thought that they were safe because they were the people of God. But the judgment and the justification, both the way people uh, are going to be forgiven and accepted cuts across Jew and Gentile. And the way people are going to be judged cuts across Jew or Gentile. And their problem was that they did not see that they stand under the same judgment. They stand under the same need for renewal, for forgiveness, for transformation. And they had refused to see this very thing. And so Paul is coming after them and saying that you are storing up for yourself wrath. You've got a portfolio, okay? You've got that that the word storing up is the word we get thesaurus. It means a treasury. And for the Jew, it was thought that there's a treasury of good that we're storing up. And Paul says, no, there's a treasury of judgment that you're storing up. Because you are resisting the kindness of God. He speaks of their hard and impenitent heart. So often that was a part of the Old Testament uh, conviction of the Jews. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 27 
Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin. And I want you to notice particularly what happens at the end of this chapter when he says in verses 28 and 29, the one who's a Jew is not the one who's just outwardly circumcised. And it's, it's not physical, but verse 29, a Jew is one who is inward and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the, le- the letter. And this gives us a key for what Paul's talking about in this whole chapter. Not just an outward, either a, a adherence to the law or an outward circumcision that just guarantees that you're going to be accepted in that final day. No, it's a circumcision of the heart that matters. And notice how closely this aligns with what is said in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. How graphic is that? To show that the outward circumcision speaks to an inward circumcision that must happen. But notice what he says. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. See, that's what he's talking about here. You're impenitent. You're hard-hearted. You're, you, you've got a heart that's not been transformed. And at the end of the chapter, he's saying, it doesn't matter that you're outwardly circumcised. You're not inwardly circumcised. You've got a hard, impenitent heart. And you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. And in that very context in Deuteronomy chapter 10, he says, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial. even talks about his impartiality in that passage. Other passages say the same thing in Jeremiah 4.4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. And later in Jeremiah, he puts them alongside of the uncircumcised. And he says, all these nations are uncircumcised, but the house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. So I'm just putting them right there with the rest of them. And that's basically the approach here. If you're uncircumcised of heart, it doesn't matter that you're outwardly circumcised. It doesn't matter that you happen to be a Jew. You're storing up wrath for yourself. And, and you can see how he's getting to that point in, chapter, in verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> because after talking about the judgment, he says specifically, there's going to be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. They thought it was going to be only the Greeks and the Jew would be excluded. And Paul says, no, you're going to be first in line for judgment or first in line for blessing, as he says in verse 10. Yeah, your priority means that you're first up to bat as to whatever is going to happen. But you're not excluded from judgment. Now, the very sins that... uh, he mentions especially, most, most commentators would say, it's the sins mentioned in verse 29 and following. Covetousness and malice and strife and deceit, slander. Paul himself had been a sufferer of the slander. Gossip, haughty, boastful, insolent. These are so much the qualities 
that we see wherever Paul went in terms of the gospel, how he was attacked and how, how they rose up against the good news of Jesus Christ. So this, this is not said apart from what was actively happening in the spread of the gospel at that time. It's what Paul was running into again and again. It's what, uh, what was said in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was stoned. He cried out to them, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. It's the same message. Same message that Paul is proclaiming. And he's giving, you see, the Romans, he's saying, this is what I proclaim. This is how I engage people in the synagogue and the marketplace. And this is why he shifts to this personal diatribe method, as they call it, uh, where he goes from the third person, they, in chapter 1, to you. It's like a single man he's talking to. And this is imaginary person that he's interacting with him. He's taking these universal truths and he's making it vivid by addressing one person and going back and forth with that one person as we're all kind of watching and feeling the weight of this, saying, what will happen to you? So in the first place, we see the inclusion of the Jews in judgment. As he says in verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. In the second place, we should just emphasize, we'll do it briefly, but in the second place, the intensity of the judgment that he proclaims. We've already mentioned that in terms of the storing up wrath for yourself on this day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It doesn't look like it now. In fact, he says, right now there's forbearance and patience. Mars talks about it was a truce, but it was not a peace. It was a a momentary, temporary holding back with judgment. But most people tend to think that that means God's not going to do anything. I mean, you've lived your whole life and God really, what's he done to you? And all your sin and rejection of him. But it shows that God has an amazing goodness, an amazing kindness that holds off and holds off and holds off and holds off the prospect that we may yet repent. We may yet turn. But the Jews, but this doesn't mean that it is not coming and won't fully be poured out upon us. And this is shown particularly in the way that verses 7 through 10 are constructed. Now, get out your thinking caps a little bit. Let's do some English here. Um, You'll notice that this is how he constructs it. He has, uh, he starts off, those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he'll give eternal life. So, you have right action, a good action, good reward, then bad action, bad reward, and then it backs out. Bad reward, bad action, uh, bad, good reward, good action. That's the way it is. It's constructed. 
So there's A, B, C, D, D, uh, C, B, A. The point is this. In the middle, this is called a chiasm, they say. What's important about it is the middle of the chiasm is what's, so, it's what's being emphasized. It's like a way to underscore the central part of what he's saying here. And the central part reads like this. For those who disobey God, and the words are just lined up in the original text in verse 9. There'll be, trib- there'll be wrath, fury, tribulation, distress. Those are just lined up in the middle. To point out to the Jews, you think that you're going to be omitted from this judgment, but this is what's going to happen. It's going to give every each person according to his works. There's no partiality. That's verses 6 and 11. That's the envelope around these verses. There's no partiality. Each one will get according to his works. And here's the central thing I want you to understand. That for those who turn away from him, there's wrath and fury and tribulation and distress. He's underscoring for the Jew the seriousness of the suffering and the horror of that judgment. Wrath and fury point to God's side of it. Distress and tribulation to man's side, what he will suffer. Tribulation points to being pressed and squashed, as one commentator says. And then distress to being hemmed up. The idea is to be hemmed up in a tight place with only the wrath of God and there's no way out of it forever. You see, he's trying to stir them up. He's trying to get at them, to shake them loose from their self, their complacency and their self-satisfaction and their self-righteousness and their dependence on the fact, well, hey, we're Jews. We're, we're, we don't have to be concerned like everybody else. And, of course, some say that Paul is addressing them as having been in that position himself and having thought just like they thought. Because he was a Pharisee. He himself is a Jew. He even identifies with them. Uh, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. And so he is encountering the, the, the Jewish thinker in this passage to draw him to a place of desperation where he realizes, I have no hope in myself. That's why he ends in chapter 3, verse 9, as I said... We've already charged that all Jews and Greeks are under sin. He says in chapter 3, verse 19, I've said all of this so that every mouth may be stopped. The whole world may be held accountable to God. Nobody can stand before God apart from the mercy of Christ Jesus. And so the inclusion of the Jews in judgment and the intensity of this judgment... And then finally, we must talk a little bit about the sincerity of true obedience. Probably the hardest part of this passage that's given commentators uh, a lot of grief is it seems that Paul is teaching that you can be saved by works in this passage. Because he says, those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Some have been so opposed to the idea that, that uh, judgment has something to do with works that they make this 
hypothetical. In other words, if it were possible for somebody to continue in good, then they could be, they could have eternal life. But that's my point. Nobody can. But there's nothing about the passage that indicates it's hypothetical. And all the very best commentators, I believe, I've got, you know, a bunch of them. And, and again and again and again, they point out, though he is, this is Paul's teaching on what's going to happen in Judgment Day. I think one of the keys to it is what he says later in chapter 2 of what a true Jew is. It's someone who's circumcised of heart. That's his context. It's much like what Jesus did in Matthew 5 when he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. And you think, wait a minute, the Pharisees had like 319 or some odd rules that you had to keep. So you're saying, Jesus, no, I won't do it. I, maybe 400 or 500, then you're getting close to having the righteousness that you need. That's not the point. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, you've heard that if you, don't, if you murder somebody, I'm telling you if you get angry. You've heard if you commit adultery, I'm saying if you look at a woman. What's he after there? The same thing as he talks earlier in that, uh, as he talks about the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are broken of heart, blessed are those who show mercy. He talk, he's talking about an inside-out transformation, a change, a renewal of heart that causes us to in, put ourselves in God's hands and in God's mercy and trusting in His mercy and forgiveness, we give ourselves up to His will. This was true in the Old Testament as the revelation of God you might say, was in the bud, still in the bud, that's how you followed God. You trusted Him. You trusted His mercy and you gave yourself to His will. And when it opens up into the full flower of Jesus Christ, it's the same thing. Now, at the full revelation of Christ, you trust Him for forgiveness. Now, accomplished through Jesus Christ, not simply in the... uh, the sacrifice system, but now completely finished in Jesus Christ, you entrust yourself to Jesus Christ and you follow Him. And the very way He puts it here in verse 7, they're seeking not for things on the earth. They're seeking, as John Murray says, these are redemptive categories. They have to do with our salvation. They're seeking for glory and honor and immortality. It's like Hebrews 11. They're seeking for those things that are above They're seeking for that country uh, that God creates, the the heaven, uh, the, the, the rewards that He will bring in heaven. They're not looking for this world. They're looking for another world. And this idea of patience and good works, it always is connected with Christian obedience. And so many commentators would say that Paul is basically setting forth what happens when a person is renewed through Jesus Christ. And remember that every time judgment is talked about, for instance, let me just read one in case you think, well, it's not right that judgment has to do with works. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Everywhere it's talked about. Matthew 16, 27, when Jesus talks about it. John 15, 29, when Jesus talks about it. Galatians 6, 7 through 10, we could go on and on. 
always talked about in terms of how you lived your life. Which shows that when you trust in Christ, your life is transformed and it shows it. It shows it. And that's what Paul is talking about here. There are two kinds of life. The self-seeking life in terms of self-ambition, not obeying the truth, turning away from God and not trusting Him and devoting your life to whatever you want to do, or entrusting yourself to Him and seeking Him and giving yourself up to His will, both in mercy and forgiveness and in obedience. And God shows no partiality to Jew or Gentile on that score. So we must always stress, as was stressed in the Old Testament, the need that though we belong to the covenant outwardly through baptism, even as they did through circumcision, we must always be calling one another, calling our children, calling every member of the outward covenant as they did in the Old Testament, be circumcised of heart, not just in your flesh. Be renewed in your inner man. Receive Jesus Christ. Be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Embrace what is proclaimed in the, in the baptism that is in Christ. Don't be satisfied that just your mother and daddy are Christians, or your friend is a Christian, or you're part, you're even a member of a church, or you're, some people would think because you're an American, you know, whatever. No, none of that means anything except that you yourself have trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation and you're trusting Him to transform your life. And your life is being transformed. Basically, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, it shows that there are so many ways for us to hold His Lordship at bay, to keep Him away from us. So that there's not this central, helpless, giving ourselves up to Christ for forgiveness and transformation. We do it because some ways we do it is that we think because we know the right things that that's okay. I know doctrine backwards and forwards and I can debate any Baptist or Methodist or Episcopalian or Catholic. I know the doctrine. That doesn't mean anything. He doesn't say anything about what people know. He, he says this is their life that is on the line in that final day. Or because we do certain rituals. Or because we have certain emotions and, and we show the effusion of our emotion in worship. This must mean that we have something real. No. It's proverbial that many, many millions of people who have emotional expressions in worship still are immoral in their day-to-day lives. It doesn't matter of my standing or my position. It's certainly another way I keep away his lordship is trying to do performance and think that I earn his acceptance. What is that really doing? It's keeping away the absolute lordship in which I'm helpless and broken. I must have his forgiveness. I must have his transformation. And so for you and for me, here's the question. Are you storing up for yourself wrath on that day? Do you find yourself among the Jews in some hope, some thing that you're doing that you think is going to absolve you from judgment? Or maybe you just got in your head there's really not going to be judgment in that day. 
And it's something I don't have to worry about. Well, this message is that you are developing a portfolio of wrath that will crash in upon your head. This is Paul's message to the Jew. But his message is couched in this bigger message. This whole thing was introduced by this. Here's the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ. That the Father has given His Son so that whoever believes in Him can have eternal life. And one of the most encouraging parts about this very passage is God's kindness and forbearance and patience. His kindness to you. His heart goodness is what the word means. He, he means so, he means to do you good. He, he, he has good intentions for you and he wants you to experience his grace. That's why he hasn't judged you. Just think, day after day after day, year after year after year, he's been kind to you if you've refused him to this day. But he's been kind to this point that you might repent. That you might repent. And as a part of the gospel, it says he's been exalted at the right hand of God to grant that repentance. He even gives it to you. He gives you the grace to believe in him and to repent. Won't you cry out to him? Won't you say, you are my Lord who must... Save me in every way to forgive me and change me and keep me and preserve me and finally bring me to that final day when I will be completely made holy and my body will be made new. That's truly the Lord we are called to serve. May each one of you trust Him. And may you not be storing up. May you not have a portfolio of wrath. Let us pray. Lord, we are so negligent, we think on such airy things so much of the time. And the central critical issues of life, of history, of this world, of God, and what we are and who we are, get pushed to the side. Yet each one of us, as Paul says, each one of us must face you in judgment individually, individually, we must give an account. Individually, we will be judged. No, Lord, it makes us all the more helpless. We know that there's nothing that will withstand your judgment apart from Jesus Christ. He must forgive us our sins and He must renew us and make our hearts new and circumcise our hearts. Even as we read in Deuteronomy 30 that you will circumcise the hearts of your people so that they will love you with all their heart, soul, and mind. Oh Lord, it is your work of your Spirit through Jesus Christ that we must have. And if we have it, there will be change in our lives. And it will certainly show itself in that day, not that we were perfect, but that we were the transformed people who began to love after the pattern of Christ 
who began to change, who began to develop patience and forbearance and forgiveness toward one another, who became less and less angry and more and more given to love, more and more merciful, more and more self-sacrificing, more and more holy and pure in our sexuality and in all of our social relationships. Oh, Lord, save us. Circumcise us, Lord. Raise us up to new life. May we helplessly trust you as our Lord, for Jesus' sake. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away, won't you chase my fears away?